0: What's going on everybody? This is Black Men's Sundays. I'm your host Corey Sylvester Murray and we're talking about generational wealth. We're talking about finance and of course we're talking about business. It's a Black Men's Sunday. And before we introduce today's guest, my brother Eric from Huntsville, Alabama, who do you have for our Black Men Sunday spotlight?
1: Hey, thank you, Cory. Uh, my spotlight today, I'm a, I. If, if most people that follows me know that I like to barbecue. So I figured, why not do something that's kind of touching on the favorite thing I love to do. So my Black Sunday spotlight is going to focus on Jones Barbecue um, that's out in Morena, Arkansas. It has been known or has been located or recognized as being the oldest business for over 100 years that's in america now currently this uh, diner is currently owned by james jones and his Betty and his wife betty the diner has been open since at least 1910 and is still widely known for serving the best barbecue pork with a secret sauce that's my spotlight for today jones barbecue one of the oldest black businesses that's still around back to you cory
0: oh man that was like the fastest spotlight in history i barely got to sip a sip some water man but yeah i definitely like that and i saw last week you sent me a picture of those ribs so i'm thinking we're gonna have to do a black men's sundays in hunts vegas is that cool brother hey that's cool with me definitely hey thanks again for that spotlight now let's go on and introduce no today's problem. guest We have Ted Santos on the show today. We're going to find out who this brother is. He's a CEO. He's a founder and CEO of the Turnaround Investment Partners. We're going to find out what that is. He's out of New York City. This brother went to Howard University. You know, we went to FAMU over here. Eric went to the the smaller A&M in Alabama, you know, FAMU, A&M. And uh, this brother here, when, when we're talking about helping CEOs, Of midsize and large companies, this brother does that. This brother creates miracles. So we're going to find out how he does that. And we're going to find out how we can be innovators. It's a lot of CEOs that listen to our show. It's a lot of business owners that listen to our show. It's a lot of brothers and sisters that listen to our show that are aspiring to be business owners. So we want to learn some tips. We want to learn How can we get in the game if we're already in the game and we're struggling right now? You know, we're not innovating. What can we do? So first off, Ted Santos, welcome to Black Men Sundays, brother. How are you doing?
2: Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure to be here on your show. Uh, I I look forward to this conversation. Uh, You guys have great discussions, so I'm looking forward to being part of it.
0: Definitely. So let's go on and get started. Turnaround Investment Partners. You're the CEO and the founder. What is that business all about?
2: we are in the business of producing miracles. That is, that is you could say, our, uh, our, our core competency in, the, in what we, the outcome, the product we produce. And CEOs hire us when they're looking to create a breakthrough and they're not sure how to do it with existing resources. So one of the things I do is I work with CEOs, could be them and their executive team, but I work with them to create disruptive strategies. And that, that could end up being creation of disruptive technology, or penetrating an untapped market. And in every case, they're going after revenue that they didn't go after before. It's new revenue, and they didn't know how to get it in the past. And then I work with them to transform corporate culture to ensure the culture is able to profitably execute the breakthrough initiative.
0: Wow, great information. And let's back it up for a second. As I prefaced, you went to Howard University. How did you get interested investments in the beginning before you even became a
2: CEO I would say I I had an interest in uh, in the stock market so I I made some money in the stock market I I did pretty well investing in stocks so my actually my first investment I ever made was in 1988 and I invested in Platinum I took physical possession I didn't know a lot about uh, investing But what I did know is platinum and gold were almost never at the same price. And they were like $10 apart. So I figured if I bought platinum and in 30 days, I I made like a huge return on that. So after that, I started looking at equities and options. And so investing and uh, at some point I did look at purchasing uh, apartment buildings in uh, D.C., and uh, one of the things that I've always thought is one of the best investments you can make is in yourself. And so investing in yourself and then looking at companies that you can buy into uh, taking a, a minority or a majority stake in the company and being able to run it. And I, I did get my, you could say my chops wet uh, by being an executive. I ran businesses that were growing so fast they were falling apart and I completely stabilized them and then increased the growth without it falling apart. And I've been a turnaround specialist, running a company with declining revenues, turning it around. Uh, it took me nine months to get 69% increase in revenue, uh, look at new services, uh, m- becoming a differentiator in the marketplace. So that's where I, I, you could say I, I, I got my feet wet in, in leadership in the corporate world and, and knowing that I had the capacity to lead people to do things they didn't know how to do and it might seem like a miracle.
0: Okay, great information, Um, because, you know, we want to hear some miracles on Black Men Sundays today. So, for brothers that have a business that may be a CEO of their business, but the business is struggling, whether it be the financial climate, whether it be just not selling, or just that they need some new marketing going on, like, how can you turn around their company? Like, what information do you get from them, and how how do you decide where they need to get their turnaround from.
2: When I work with CEOs, I have a philosophy and the philosophy is if you're the CEO and you are not intentionally creating problems, you should be fired or retrained immediately. So your job is to create problems for the organization to solve. And and a great example that everyone would know is a guy like uh, Steve Jobs. So, you know, whatever he told people, we're going to create something that makes the Walkman obsolete. The people are probably thinking, this is crazy. This guy is high. It makes no sense. What, why are we competing with listening devices? We make computers. But out comes the iPod. And then he says, okay, now that iPod is going to be a phone. And once again, they probably said, that makes no sense. So he created problems. And when they solved the problem... It's a breakthrough and it allowed them to go after untapped revenue to do things they had never done. But now in the culture of the organization gets that sort of what you would call confidence that, hey, we can do impossible things. So what what else do you have? We're ready. And, and I've seen that in organizations where they're like, all right, we did that. It, it really galvanizes your team. So. I'm, I'm saying that first, never be afraid to create problems for your organization to solve. And, and don't walk around with a white glove saying the desk is dirty. That's not a problem. It's creating, it's producing an outcome, like I said, that you don't know how to do on your own, except once it's accomplished, it alters the organization forever. So when I went into a, I ran a translation, translating foreign languages, I knew nothing about that industry. What how I educated myself is I I first kind of interviewed the employees to make sure I understood the value proposition we gave to customers. And then I had a lot of conversations with customers and I asked customers, what do we do for you? How do we provide value? What could we do for you that we've never done? And what the customers did is they didn't know how to ask for what they wanted. But now that I had expertise in the industry. I could hear what was unspoken and they were asking for something that they didn't either they didn't think was possible or they didn't know how to ask. And that allowed us to create a completely new service that had much higher margins. And it it gave us a huge differential uh, advantage, competitive advantage in the marketplace. So your customers can often help you with that breakthrough, but they may not know how to ask for it. So you have to use your expertise in the industry to listen for what they're not saying. And and so, and once I told the employees we're creating this new service, well, that's a problem because the employees don't know how to even deliver it because we're doing something that no one else in the industry is doing.
0: When companies call you or CEOs call you, how do you get them to innovate? Because a lot of times with these companies, you know, you kind of get in a comfort zone. You're doing this, it worked a while, but something happens and now it's not working. So how do you get the companies or the CEOs, how do you get them out of the comfort zones and, and make them become innovators and at the same time be a disruptor in the industry?
2: It's a really good question. The short answer is to say, uh, I work with people to unlearn what they already know. So you could say what you know hides what you don't know. So At one time, what they knew was the Earth was the center of the universe and all the planets revolve around it. And they made decisions based on what they knew. And some guy named Copernicus came along and said, well, that's inaccurate. And so people often don't want to hear uh, things that may invalidate what they know. And you talk about comfort zones. Someone once asked me in in an interview, how do you know a company is in trouble? And I said, because it's successful. Wow. Wow. So when you're good at something, it's kind of what you were alluding to, man, we're good. We know how to do this and we'll just do this over and over and they'll do it until someone outside the industry disrupts them. And now they're forced to play catch up. So when I work with CEOs, I have a a methodology. I actually I created something called the disruptive leadership model and the disruptive leadership model. It is ultimately about creating disruption on purpose. At the base of that, you really have to get people have to have integrity, right? If you say you're going to do it, you do it. If you say you're not going to do it, you need accountability, responsibility. These are things that you need at the base of leadership. But you also need to unlearn things that you think are true. And this is this is one reason why most disruption comes from companies outside the industry. Everyone in the industry already knows the facts. They know what you can and can't do. What someone outside the industry, they're not limited by those beliefs. So they try things that people in the industry won't try. I mean, technically, Sony should have come up with the iPod. That was their industry. The, The MP3 player existed. All Sony had to do was take it, put a thousand songs on it, and make the Walkman obsolete. But they let someone outside their industry do that. Sony had to play catch-up they did make an mp3 player but now they were behind instead of them continuing to lead I mean even how we can go back and look at uh horse and buggy companies that they could have made the automobile some of them did but most of them went out of business that's how cars started they used the chassis of uh horse and buggy you could look at the typewriter companies uh Typewriter companies should have been, they should have transitioned to computers. They didn't. They let the computer industry make typewriters obsolete. So they were good at making typewriters. And that's the problem. When you become good at something, you just keep doing it over and over. And this is, you know, I've worked with CEOs and they say, I don't want my people to think. I just want processes in place and they just do their job. And I'm like, then you're going to kill innovation if you do that. You'll never be able to mine the intellectual capital or that." that people have, the talent that's untapped. Uh, And oftentimes when you create problems, what you do is you disrupt the way people think and the way they see things. And now they have to do things that are not normal. What you'll find that people have transferable skills. Maybe you did something similar in the past and now you can take that skill that wasn't used in the workplace to work on this breakthrough initiative and you find out that you're better at it than you uh, actually realized.
0: Gotcha. And early on, you said, basically, the way you started your business, you did some investing. So I want to talk a little investing real quick, because a lot of brothers and sisters are like, you know, the market, well, the market's kind of coming up a little bit now. But for a while, the market was down, a lot of brothers were pulling their money out. So my question for you is, um, at this point, are there any good you know cuz we're trying to we're trying to get some money going too you know i invest i do i have individual stocks i have group stocks as well but i do mine through my financial advisor cuz i learned i'm kind of one of those emotional guys okay the stocks up stocks up then then once it starts <laughs> dropping and i got those 50 or 100 or 200 shares i start getting a little nervous i can't even have a good day cuz i'm watching this like every minute of my day so for you looking at the market now are there any companies that are good investments at this point for you?
2: I, I'm, I'm unaware of that. Uh, everyone loves NVIDIA because of AI and it's, it's run up. So I would say as a general rule, the market has run up too much. Uh, it's, it's out of reach. So the, the people who short stocks, people who make money by the market going down, people expected the stock market to go down because the Fed, Federal Reserve raised interest rates. And the market didn't do that. It kept running and running. And the more it runs, it runs against people who were betting or shorting the market. They were betting that the market would go down. Well, when the market keeps going up, they eventually have to cover and start selling their shorts, short positions. And that that falsely forces the market to keep going up. And that's what we've been watching over the past few weeks. Uh, so it's it's a it's a false indicator of success. And this is how a lot of people get caught in the frenzy of everything is going so well. But the, this past week, the market didn't do so well because people are listening and the Fed is saying, no, we're going to raise interest rates more, which means we're going to choke off more jobs and we're going to choke more money out of the economy, which means people are companies hopefully will lay people off. So uh the what i would say to stay away from at least right now until it, there's a little bit of a correction stay away from the big tech companies like meta google um nvidia microsoft stay away from those i'm not saying they're not good buys but they've run up too much and you don't want to buy at the top of the market because you'll get caught when it drops and you won't you'll hate seeing the market drop so Maybe insurance companies will do well because they make money regardless <laughs> of whether it's a good market or a bad market. People need insurance regardless of that. And they, insurance companies can raise their premiums. So I would say look at quality insurance companies. Uh, look at quality. Look at cigarette and alcohol companies. They, and if we go into a recession, somehow they still continue to do well. I'm not advocating any of those, but I'm just, you know, if you want to be intelligent about the market, uh, that those would be my suggestions, no individual companies. I'm not an advisor. I don't, I don't recommend stocks or anything.
0: No, I got you. I just wanted to get, you know, your perspective. I mean, we've had financial advisors, we've had all the realms on here, but it's nice to hear a CEO and just like, you know, what do you, like, what are you invested in these days? So that's why I wanted to right. kind of get that out there. Yeah.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, also will look at the overall economy to understand the trends. Patterns, patterns are are important to see, and you know, oftentimes market psychology will run the market one way up or down in an exaggerated fashion, and and you know, we we've just w- witnessed the exaggerated run up. So I, I would caution on that.
0: Definitely great information, and you know, for brothers and sisters that are listening that have, they want to be a CEO. They want to start a business. What advice would you give as far as the mindset of a CEO?
2: Everyone says, find a problem to solve. And maybe the next level is find a problem to create that's big enough that people will want to join you on that platform. So you create a problem. John F. Kennedy created a huge problem by saying, we're going to send a man to the moon before the end of the decade. That was a huge problem to solve. And and I know people personally who said they changed their major in, in college during that time uh, because they wanted to help send a man to the moon. So if there's some possibility, uh, if you want to be a CEO, you, it's, it's critical for you to understand long term big picture. It's critical for you to understand uh, that a major part of your job is you're in the business of possibility. Uh, when you accomplish something, then look at what's possible next, what's possible beyond that. Uh, it's critical that you have leadership skills that uh, that allow you to coach people up and get people to the next level. that what, One of the problems I see with CEOs is that they'll grow from zero to twenty million. And these are really smart, Ivy League educated people, and they know how to do everything better than their direct reports. So instead of them coaching their direct reports up, they do too much. And when they get to 20 million and want to get beyond it, their executive team is not competent because the CEO was too smart. He did everything. So then he has to fire those people, and he grows to, let's say, 60 million And he still has that same mindset of doing everything. And then he has to fire those people and hire new people for the next. But the best CEOs will know how to coach their people up and grow at each level. So because it's expensive having to fire people who have been with you from the beginning and then hire new ones and then fire them. And and so each revenue milestone, you're you're hiring people who know how to handle the next level. But if, if you're good at strategically delegating, uh, if you know how to create an environment that allows for high performance where you know people will make mistakes sometimes, you don't crush them for that. Uh, you look at what was learned in the mistake. Uh, people will say things that maybe don't make sense. Sometimes the ridiculous ideas get you uh, iPods and iPhones.
0: A lot of brothers and sisters You know, want to be CEOs, but then when when it's really, when they really have, when they're really at the level to do it, fear creeps in. They look at other companies that have, you know, did okay for a while, but then they failed. So, what advice would you give brothers and sisters that are CEOs of companies or want to become CEOs of companies, but they're looking at the past Mm -hmm. companies that failed? How can they learn not to follow in those footsteps?
2: you do yourself a disservice for anything. I don't care if it's business, your love life, your friends, when you focus on what you don't want, you've already defeated yourself. So imagine in this corner over here is everything you don't want. And you're over there like trying to keep everything you don't want from coming out. But in the other corner is everything you do want. And you actually never go over there because you're so focused on what you, you don't want. So Uh the other part to that is if you're a CEO of a one million dollar company and you want to want to get to ten million dollars, you need to be a ten million dollar CEO well before you get there. And if you make it to ten and you want to get to twenty, you need to be a twenty million dollar CEO before there. And each each one, if you want to be a fifty million, a hundred million, but if you wait if you're at 50 million and you want to get to 100 million and you believe well once I get there, I'll cross that bridge when I get there, the skills and competencies and the mindset you have at 50 million will choke off 100 million. And when you get to 100 million, it will look like such it will look so overwhelming that you will shrink the your skills will shrink the company back down to about 55 million and you'll say I tried that, it's a nightmare. Growing a company is a disaster. What people don't see is that, as you said, it's it's mindset. Your mindset has gotten you to 50 million, and that's what it's capable. So there are things that you need to unlearn. There are skills and competencies. There are things that you need to delegate to your other people, uh, so that they grow up and they also need to be 100 million dollar CFOs and COOs and CMOS and. They need to so strategically delegating helps them get there. But you, as a CEO, I, I'm sorry, I'm hesitating because I, I just thought of a story. I had I used to do these CEO roundtables. So I I invited CEOs. You had to had had to have revenues between 100 million and 1 billion dollars. That was it. And only CEOs. So I'd invite the sitting or current CEOs of companies what I call middle market, and then I would invite. Former CEOs of Fortune Five Hundreds, and I've had CEOs of NCR Chase Bank, Dunham Bradstreet, Xerox, Harris Hotels Casinos, the CEO of New York Stock Exchange I mean I've had really heavy hitters, and one of those CEOs said that he was very good at growing companies and he was great at turnarounds and he said he 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 told at a roundtable he said he went into one company and He thought to transform the company, he would just fire like 30% of the employees and start bringing in some of his own people and these people need to be transformed they're screwed up blah blah blah. And then it wasn't working. So someone convinced him that if he transformed first, then it would be much easier so he tried it. So he went through the transformation. And he said, once he did that, the rest of the company followed him. So if you want to grow, looking at other companies is kind of irrelevant. It's your transformation that will be more valuable. And if you only think that it's your people that need to grow and and they should fix themselves or be better, if you transform, they're going to follow that lead and go with you. So it's it's really does start with, with leadership.
0: Great information. And, you know, coming from Howard university, you're a CEO, who, who were your mentors that you looked up to? Um, and what advice did they give you?
2: I learned leadership under very extreme conditions and, um, maybe I have an, an answer to mentor, but not in the sense that you think, um, so I'll quickly share two stories. The first one, I was six years old. I watched my mother run with broken legs. She had broken legs because she took her, I'm the oldest, I was the oldest of three. She took us to a New Year's Eve party at her mother's house and she dropped her brother off in the next town, which was Newark. <laughs> and uh, and then she said, oh, my children are on the front seat. My brother and his wife are in the back. I'll leave my children. Because it's you know, five, six in the morning, it's dark, it's New Year's Day and 100 yards from home, the car is wrapped around a tree. And I was just tall enough to see over the dashboard and I watched my mother run home and my father, he came with his cousin, carried us out to the car. I still even have a scar, nose broken. So I saw my mother run, she didn't limp, crawl, nothing. And when I saw her run and then later learned her both legs were broken, my life changed forever because now I was trying to understand what is it that human beings have in them that allow them to run with broken legs, like without hesitation. And so I'm 5'6", weighed 143 in high school. I was dunking basketballs. I was a starting defensive nose guard. And when I say starting, I was punishing the other team at 143 because all I was after was How do you run with, how do you pull that out of you? Um, Fast forward, I'm 21, both my parents die, we bury them. I'm the oldest of four and imagine I'm 21. My brother's 19 and my two sisters are 12 and 16. That same mindset of this is all that's left of the family. So now how do you lead children and I'm their brother and I have to serve some role of a parent at the same time And there's a lot of things that need to be done and people are distraught. So I'm asking my 12 and 16 year old sister to do things that they absolutely do not know how to do. So I learned how to lead in, in the middle of chaos, keep your head. What are the things you want to accomplish, how to delegate, and then you're asking people to do things they don't know how to do. So how do you coach them up so they can do these things, and then they volunteered to take on even bigger things. So I took that and transferred it to my professional life. So when I was leading, I had that same mindset of the company's in chaos and I knew I've seen worse than this. So, and I survived that. So I've definitely survived this. So what do I need from my people? And when they came to me with problems, I knew how to coach them up so that I basically made myself obsolete, and this is something that a CEO needs to understand. The faster you can make yourself obsolete, that your people don't need you for like 90% of things, you can work on growing the company to the next level. You can focus on these possibilities and dif- differentiating yourself in a marketplace, so whether it's acquisitions, uh, new property, whatever it is, new client, new kinds of clients, new services, when you can make yourself obsolete and your people are able to accomplish things without running to you to put out fires, because the last thing you want to do as a CEO is be a fireman putting out fires all the time. So my parents' death really taught me about leadership in in a huge way. Um, I, I can't even describe how, how valuable it was, and I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Uh, but if someone wants to read about it, uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book, David and Goliath, and and he talks specifically about how a death, a child who has a parent dies around the age of 20, 21, uh, they develop leadership skills. And he cited a number of Fortune 500 uh, CEOs. So he, what he was looking at, what are possible disadvantages that turn out to be your advantage? And, and he researched different things, scenarios where that was. And the loss of a parent was one of those.
0: Because I feel like these days you hear so many people, oh, I want to be a boss. I want to run my company. I want to be a CEO. What's one of the biggest misconceptions that people that aren't CEOs think?
2: They think they're there to tell people what to do. If you're telling your people what to do, you as a leader, you're incompetent because you hired the wrong people. Or people talk about trust. You're creating a culture of no trust. You're telling your people, I don't trust that you can get this done. I'll do it. I won't delegate it to you. Uh, And then they won't trust trust the people under them and under them. And that can even spill over to your clients.
0: Okay, great, great information. And, you know, our show is about generational wealth. You know, one thing about CEOs, um, it's it's a little easier to establish generational wealth because of the income levels, especially when especially when we're talking about the African-American community. You know, we're more heavily with in the, on the generational poverty side of things. So what are you doing for yourself, for your family that's establishing generational wealth?
2: So um, aside from money, one of the most critical things that, that I see, and I, I don't have children, but I have nieces, is that you prepare them to be in a position of power. That's not something that's taught in the Black community. You're taught to go out and find a great job with great benefits, but when you are looking for a position of power, you look at things differently. And what are, what do I mean by that specifically? Um, economic power. If you truly want economic power, the path that you get on is to um, own natural resources. And then you own an industry. Do you, when I say vertically integrate an industry, do you know what I mean by that?
0: No, I don't. Go
2: ahead. Okay so let's take oil if you own the oil rights mineral rights to oil you own the oil wells you drill the oil instead of just selling the oil to someone you build the refineries there are over six thousand products that come from oil so you build the refineries you create motor oil you create uh, transmission fluid you create petroleum jelly even the pharmaceuticals by so you create you transform oil into a product that these different industries can use. You make gasoline and then you have gas stations In your gas stations. You can sell motor oil and all these other things. You can have a retail store that uh, sells motor oil. That's one industry. You can own iron ore mines, iron ore mines and that allows you to make tools and silverware and machinery that helps you drill Your oil wells, you can look at car manufacturing, but now you own the iron ore. What that does is, as a Black community, it allows you to give jobs to people in your community. And then you take that money, your profits, you hire lobbyists, and you pay lobbyists to change or create laws that are beneficial to the businesses, to others. Like, so if you integrate it from oil up to gas stations, now you can have laws tax benefits, international uh, trade benefits that are good for the businesses of of your community and also that are beneficial to the people of your community. So so now you are governing your own community as opposed to someone else hiring the lobbyist and making laws that either maybe benefit you or they're written to benefit you except there are loopholes that benefit everyone else better than they benefit you. But if you now are as a community and you have your leaders saying, these are the laws, you're not saying this is the black agenda. You're saying these are the laws that we want passed and you go through the system that that's already in place. You hire lobbyists, they go speak to the legislators and if the legislators aren't doing what you want, then I'm going to go to you. If I own the oil company, I'm going to go to you and say, look, I want you to be a senator here in New Jersey, and I'm going to make sure I'm going to finance you so you win. And once you're senator, you need to protect our agenda, the laws. You need to go create relationships with other senators and make sure our laws are passed. That's raising your children to have that kind of power. That's a different way than saying, we have an agenda and you should give us something. No, we are, we are, we're not looking to, for you to invite us to the table. We've built a table and you're not invited, but these are the decisions we've made at our table. And you as a, a governing, as a legislators, your job is to pass them and enforce uh, and use the enforcements to protect, to protect our laws that, that's it. That's a very different mindset and that's what's missing. But it takes a different kind of organization and collaboration all of the pieces of the puzzle are there the money's there the the education is there the talent is there but no one's put the puzzle together for them to all work so that you're now governing your very own community oh
0: man that's that's a gem right there i, I appreciate you and i have two more questions for you first sure. off are you enjoying yourself on black men sundays brother i am Good. Yeah, because I feel like I can go another hour, but I'm only going to hold you for like another 10 <laughs> minutes, I promise. Right. I, I can okay. go all day with this.
2: I'm, I'm um, cool,
0: definitely. And another thing I wanted to ask you about, because, you know, I feel like in our community, when we talk about generational wealth, real estate, real estate, stocks, investments, we talked about the other two, but let's, and we, you touched gently on in the beginning when you were talking about um your business, but what, like, as far as real estate goes, especially with the market, with the inflation and the the high 7%. So a lot of brothers and sisters are saying, ah, "I think I just want to hold my money until the that interest rate drops or the prices drop some." What advice do you have for that or do you feel like now is still a good time to invest in real estate?
2: Uh, interest rates are probably going to go slightly a bit higher and it may be a long time before they drop. To, see what people have been spoiled for the past, you know, 20 plus years we may not see that for a long time. You know, I don't work for the fed so I, you know, maybe they'll drop next year just like that. Who who knows? Maybe the economy crashes. But we may have to get ready to adjust to a new normal. You know, in the stock market, you can do something called averaging up. So maybe you buy a stock at $10 and maybe buy more at 15 and at 20. You know, at some point you stop buying more. So if you have the capital, if you can get a good deal, if if you can negotiate good terms, it may be okay to do that. Uh, maybe the best thing is to look for something distressed. Would be in this kind of environment. If you can find distressed property and buy a, something with equity already built into it, it it would be the best. That would be the best suggestion. Uh, it may take a little bit more effort, but it, it'll be worth it than buying something that could be at the top but the thing is a lot of people are not selling their houses so there is not enough supply so that's what's keeping demand up so high with the the new home uh makers they are building like crazy
0: yeah cuz i it's funny you say that cuz at 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 various times of the year i would you know get letters in the mail hey we'll buy your house we'll buy your house and the prices are great i'm right. like wow you know, I'm going to walk away with some money, but then when I'm looking around at other homes, I'm looking right. at it's less property. I'm, right. losing, I'm, I'm losing almost half the square footage and I'm basically paying what I just sold the house for. So I'm like, no, no, I'm I'm good right here. I like money too, but right. I don't, I don't like money so much that I'm going to spend it all and I don't have anything to say, okay, I sold the house, but I, I but I don't have any equity or any yeah. money off of it. So I totally understand that. But what about from a business perspective? Is it smarter? For a company, because I see a lot of companies where they rent the property that they're in, or they rent the building versus ownership. So, what advantages do you have as an owner of the building that your business is in versus renting that building?
2: Yeah, I, I would. I'm no, I'm not an expert in that area. I, I, you know, say as a renter, there are certain things for which you're not liable, and the owner is liable for that. Uh, That would be, you know, the one advantage. If your roof is leaking or caves in or uh, uh, pipes break, you get, you know, there are certain things that you're not liable for that that's, and I'm sure that there are some tax advantages to being an owner at the same time. So a financial advisor, you know, your CPA would have to be the one to sit down and look at the cost benefit analysis on that. What perks
0: does a CEO have? as far as whether it's benefits or because you know our show is about generational Zero. work
2: none none
0: really because i've heard you know you get better you get a better benefits package
2: so what the commitment that's required the the bucks everything is on you like if you're doing it for the perk, there's those are not perks that's not a reason to be ceo you got to be highly committed you got to be committed that look a, a ceo has a job you have stakeholders Your employees are stakeholders. They have a vested interest in the success of your company. So you it's in your best interest to take care of them and protect them. Your clients are stakeholders. They have a vested interest. So you need to protect and take care of them. So you don't want to charge them so such high prices. They feel raped and they don't come back and you don't want to play your employees so low that, you know, they're always looking around. Um, You have vendors. And you don't want to negotiate that you're cutting them down to the bone, you know, and they're not making a profit. You need to take care of all of these people. And these people are going to have problems. Your vendors are. Your clients are going to have problems. Your employees, these, who wants to deal with all of that all the time? And if, if you're in a highly regulated industry, you have regulators who are watching you all the time. So if you're just doing it for the perks, ah, that's that's not a good job. Uh, You're, you're, you're going to be putting in long hours, you know, so I, every CEO that I know hits the gym. So they keep, they know keeping their body physically fit and strong so you can endure that. So they actually spend sometimes several days a week so that they can be mentally and physically fit. You're also constantly training yourself. If you want to be uh, the leader of the pack, then you're always developing yourself. Always otherwise someone's going to knock you off you're going to become irrelevant so if you're not looking for that kind of highly committed standing for something standing in a way that you've created a platform for others to join you uh it, it's your that commitment to accomplishment to great accomplishment that is its reward and perk wow. I mean yes you, you want to negotiate the 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 you know great terms warrants golden parachutes all all that with that's not worth it, because if you're not doing well, uh, I, I know a guy who was uh, CEO of one of the big banks, and he said he he was 10 or 11 years as CEO, and he had to find his successor. So he chose the number two guy, the CFO. He said that guy had been in the company for, you know, more than 20 years. He He put in his work. He earned it. He, as the CEO left, the CFO came in his position. This is a publicly traded company and in 18 months, he was the board kicked him out because he was a great number two guy. He was not a number one guy. So all these things that I'm talking about, he wasn't built for that.
0: Well, my second to last question, because we got to get something in for the sisters, since a lot of sisters are listening. You know, you're the author of Here's Why You Can't Find Love. Now, the reason why I'm bringing that up okay. is a lot of brothers, a lot of sisters are um, working all these hours You know, I go out after I get off work, but I'm I may have work to do at home or I'm mentally still I'm off the clock, but I'm still mentally kind of working. So they find themselves alone. You wrote Here's Why You Can't Find Love. What was the emphasis of writing
1: that book?
2: Relationships are not working. They're failing. Most most marriages end in divorce. That's marriage. That's not even counting the relationships, you know, that start and fail. And and just as a side note, um, it's still related to business. Corporate America is losing three hundred billion billion dollars every year because of something. Why do you think they're losing three hundred billion every year? Take a guess. They're losing three hundred billion in workplace productivity. Sorry, I, I let me add that. They're losing three hundred billion in workplace productivity. Yeah, take a guess. What do you think? You're losing three hundred billion in workplace productivity because of one word, divorce. So wow, and this this is this is not my opinion. I, I did extensive research in this. There's another source that says when people are going through divorce, their workplace productivity drops by fifty to seventy percent. So imagine a percentage of your employees are headed for divorce. They're arguing, bickering, another percentage is in the middle of it, and then there's another percentage. That just came out of it. These people are distracted; they're not putting in the work. They come to work, they punch in, but they are thinking about this horrible thing that's happening in their life. And if they have children, that may make it worse. Then they have to take off time to go to court. They, just all these problems that happen. So the book is is written partly to deal with that. So from where I'm sitting, one of the one of the most sought after skills by executives is conflict resolution. A lot of executives say, if I was better at resolving conflict, then I could deal with clients and employees better at work. Well, if you're better at resolving conflict, you're also gonna be better dealing with your spouse and your children and your family members. So most people think conflict resolution is about having this smooth thing to say and know how to make the situation go away. No. The this, this secret to conflict resolution is really only about you uh, in resolving your own internal conflict. So if someone says, boo, and you start getting upset and angry, that has nothing to do with someone saying boo. I have the right to say boo. You may not like it, but it may put you in conflict because it reminds you of something. And now you're fighting this ghost from the past that you said, I'll never let that. Next time someone says boo to me, I'm gonna you know sock it to them. So when people learn how to resolve their conflicts, which gets back to how do you get CEOs to be more innovative is because when you start talking about possibilities beyond what they can think, people get into conflict with themselves and they start telling you why that's impossible, why this can't happen and my people are not ready and the economy is not right. So when you can get people to unlearn that conflict to un sort of traumatize themselves, then you free up space for you to look at what's possible. So if you can deal with that on a relationship level. So a lot of things in my book are, are direct out of my methodology that I use in corporations. But the way the book is written, there are five women interviewing me. It's almost like a workshop. And it doesn't look like anything from business. But it's it's how do you see how you sabotage it. I'm helping in this Book talk about how people set different ways they sabotage relationships, and and a lot of times what they think they're doing is good and powerful, but they're really sabotaging. And then I talk about how to create great relationships. So if I answer also directly to your question, you're putting in these hours, you're tired, you know, I I have to turn off the mind and all that. One of the things I talk about in the book is if you dealt with your significant other as though they were your most important client, how would you deal with them? So when you're at work and you have your number one client, you want to you want to make sure they get their needs met. They're paying you more than anyone else. They might be paying you a premium. Um, you may take them to lunch periodically and say, hey, what's going on in your world? What's the future like? How do we help you? What are some other things we can do? You are making sure that no one is moving in on your client and you're making sure that they are so happy with you that they're willing to even pay you more, right? So if you dealt with your spouse, it, in the book, I call it being a professional boyfriend or a professional girlfriend's professional husband. So if you were a pro at being a husband, you would you would have that same mindset you have to your client, that you take care of them. If there's a conflict, we're gonna resolve it because I wanna keep providing a service and what you give me in return as compensation for my services, I wanna keep receiving that. And if you both look at one another as a client, so it's not so much that you have a hundred hours a week together, it's the quality time that you have with your significant significant other that you're making sure their needs are met and they're looking at you as their most important client and they're making sure your needs are met.
0: Oh, man. Oh, man. And where can we get this book?
2: Uh, it's all over. It's Amazon. You can get it inside Barnes and Noble. You can get it online, Barnes and Noble. Uh, yeah, it, all, all the electronic bookstores, it's there.
0: Definitely. And for your business, uh, Turnaround Investment Partners, you help CEO of mid-size and large companies. So when we say mid-size, like what type of capital are we talking?
2: Well, I'm usually looking at revenue. So they're gross revenue. I'm generally usually working with companies that are uh, 50 million and, and up. But I have worked with I've worked I've worked with some interesting all female uh, legal legal companies and medical facilities that just zero women in a place. Uh, and, I, and I worked with the entire organization. Those those were much smaller than, than 50 million. So I've worked with some small businesses also.
0: Definitely. with Ted Santos, thanks for coming on Black Men Sundays. We enjoyed this conversation. You gave us so many tips today. I can't wait till this airs. Thanks for coming on Black Men Sundays, brother. Enjoy your week.
2: Hey, thanks a lot, man. My pleasure. Uh, and you enjoy your week as well. It's a Black Man Sunday.